We've undertaken a review of the book of Revelation, the only book in the Bible that has the audacity, if I can use that term, to announce that it will give the reader a unique and special blessing. All through the Bible, we're encouraged to read the Bible, but only one book has the uh, aggressiveness, if I can use that term, to suggest that it's special, and it promises each of us that hear and read and study this book a very special blessing. And uh, so we should be conscious of that because we're entitled to claim that blessing because it's repeated throughout the book, and I think that we're all discovering uh, that to be so. The book of Revelation is one of the few books of the Bible that has a divinely inspired outline of the book. It's organized for us in the 19th verse, the next to the last verse of chapter 1. It's divided into three parts. John is told to write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be metatauta, that is, after these things. And indeed, chapter 1 is the vision that he first saw of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 were the seven letters of seven churches, that portion of the book that applies most directly to you and I. But then from chapter 4 on, we have it yet future, after these things. After what things? After the churches. So we have chapters 4 and 5 become, in effect, like an introduction to the uh, chapters 6 through 19, which has all these wild judgments and cataclysmic events occurring. We'll discover seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. But if we really started listing the sevens, we'd find hundreds of them. Those are the three major ones that everyone's familiar with. In chapters 4 and 5, just by way of perspective, we were given an opportunity to enter the throne room of the universe. John is, enter, enters uh, heaven and is allowed to observe the proceedings. And we have... Before the throne of God, the most climactic event in the history of the universe take place. And that's the presentation of this seven-sealed scroll. And it turns out that it takes very special qualifications to unseal the seven seals that seal this unusual scroll. And of course, as you recall from chapter 5, there's only one man in heaven and earth that is entitled to open that scroll. It had to be a kinsman of Adam. The scroll becomes quite obviously a title deed to the earth. And we went through all that last time, but the title deed basically is that document which allows the kinsman redeemer to come and claim that which is his by right. And we have, of course, had to be a kinsman of Adam. The only one qualified, able to, to perform this was, of course, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb that was slain, none other than Jesus Christ. And he steps forth and takes this seven-sealed book. And in the response to that, we had this incredible crescendo, this three-level crescendo of praise and worship, because this is the big event. It's interesting, as we put this into perspective, to recognize what it was that qualified him to undertake this momentous beginning. And it was his shed blood. It's interesting to realize the emphasis placed here eschatologically or in a prophecy sense is, is that his shed blood on the cross is far more significant than most of us have any idea. Most of us have uh, uh, been given, entitled to uh, preachments of various kinds on the shed blood of Jesus Christ as availing for our sin and all of that and that's certainly true and it's very important to each of us individually. But we also begin to discover in the book of Revelation that there's far more going on than just that. The whole redemption of the creation, the whole undoing of all that Adam 
uh, incurred in the Genesis chapter 3. The word regeneration, incidentally, really means going back to Genesis. And so we have uh, a whole set of steps undertaken now to uh, undo, in effect, or or, uh, redeem, if you will, not just you and I, but heaven and earth from the effects of sin. And the first step, of course, is to dismiss or deal with the usurpers that are in place. Who is the God of this world? Satan, one of his titles. And when Satan challenges Jesus, or I should say tempts Jesus Christ in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the famous three temptations, one of those, in one of those, he, claim, he, he shows Jesus all the nations of the world and says, they're given to me and I can give them to whomsoever I will. And Jesus never challenges that ownership or that possession. If that wasn't true, there's no temptation involved. We need to recognize that this world is controlled by the forces of darkness. And that's what Jesus came to deal with, as he expressly says in the Gospels. And we now find the whole narrative moving to a gigantic climax. And one of the things, as we get into this, it's very easy to get plunged into all the symbols and graphs and ideas and cross-references. Let's, as we jump into this again, we realize that we're talking about a real throne room. We're talking about real personages here. These aren't just idioms or visions or concepts. We're talking about the real rulers, the ones with whom we have to do. And and God has disclosed to us what's about to take place. Not only about to take place from the book of Revelation, but from all kinds of things that we'll start talking about, it's also clear that the events that Jesus is dealing with here are about to actually transpire. And uh, that will, that's something that uh, is best um, left for you to discover as we go. But I want to emphasize that this has two kinds of reality. A, a, a knowledgeable reality that it's real since the Bible declares it, but it's also real in the sense that it's imminent. It's on the horizon. And uh, so we'll deal with that as we go. This section 4 and 5 that we just finished started with verse 1 of chapter 4 where God says, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. These things are coming. And it's interesting that man would tell us the whole premise of our educational system and the propaganda that we've all been spoon-fed since we're kids is that the world is getting better and better because we confuse technological progress with everything else. God says they're going to get increasingly worse. Man says that peace among the nations is close at hand. That's certainly the theme in the press in recent times. God says that there will be wars, rumors of wars, kingdoms against kingdoms, and it's going to get worse and more climactic. Man expects to win the battle against disease, famine, and hardship. God says that there is to be fearful judgments of disease, famine, and hardships. We like to pride ourselves, we're in a technological culture, that these things are mastered. We're discovering that the old ones we thought were mastered are not, like tuberculosis. And meanwhile, we've got AIDS and all these other things coming. It is a crisis of major proportions. So it's interesting, first of all, to set aside the presuppositions we've been programmed for and start looking at reality. And I'm going to suggest to you the real truth, the real reality, is that which God has provided for our guidance that's in front of us. Now, there are some things here that we should, there's some background that I want to indulge in before we jump into chapter 6, which will help put it in perspective. Uh, You might turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, starting about verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ opens His ministry, and He does a very unusual thing. Or I should say it's maybe a very 
it has some unusual complications. Very straightforward thing, actually. He came to Nazareth, verse 16, Luke 4, 16, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the deliverance to the captives, and and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. Now notice, by the way, in verse 19, it ends with a period. I want you to note where that period is in the text, because I'll show you a contrast here in a minute. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the ministry, and sat down. The eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And verse 21 says, He began to say unto them, This day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, Jesus Christ is taking this passage from Isaiah as his mandate for his ministry. Now what's instructive as you study the Bible and you start taking it seriously is to note not only what it says, but what it doesn't say. What I want you to do is, hold your finger here if you like, but turn to Isaiah 61. Let's examine the passage that Jesus was reading. Verses 1 and 2 are the passage he was reading. If you read Isaiah 61, uh, verse 1 is pretty familiar. I mean, it's very similar to what we read in Luke. Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What comes after the word Lord there? A comma, not a period. In other words, Jesus chose to stop at that point. No, and, and then proclaim... This day is that prophecy fulfilled in years. Notice what he did not read. And the day of vengeance of our God. This opens the whole subject of the day of vengeance, the day of, lo- the, day of the Lord. There is a time at which God is indeed going to right the wrongs, that he's going to deal with sin. That's what we are going to discover is happening from chapter 6 in Revelation on. You're going to see some surprising changes. And you need to understand that there's a major, major change going on. We glibly speak, and we spoke last time, of Jesus Christ as the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. By his act of redemption, he returns the land to Israel, and he takes a Gentile bride, uh, following the, the pattern that was established by Boaz in the book of Ruth, and so forth. The kinsman redeemer is also the avenger of blood. And that's what we're going to start seeing unfold from chapters 6 through 19. Now, there are two passages that you really should have as background before we get into Revelation 6. And I will not have time, of course, to get into a full exposition of the two passages, but I do want to summarize them for you to point you to them at your own leisure or to review them if you've studied them in the past. One of these passages... Is, occurs when four disciples come to Jesus Christ for a confidential prophecy briefing. They ask him about his second coming. Four, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Peter's brother, come to him, and he gives them a confidential briefing. That briefing is so important, it's recorded in three of the Gospels. It's about a two-chapter-long passage. It's recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21 and 22, and Mark 13 and 14. We'll just take a quick look at part of the Matthew passage to get a flavor of it. So you might turn to Matthew 24. We'll pick it up about verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Mark tells us who they, who they actually were. Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming in the end of the age? 
Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now it's interesting, by the way, there have been messiahs, false messiahs in the past. But I'm going to suggest to you, none fit the passage like the one that's coming. There is a man coming on the scene that is going to deceive the whole world that he's the real Christ. That's a, that's a, that's, when you think that through, that's staggering. But let's move on. Jesus continues. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of birth pangs. Now, many people, and I'm probably guilty of this too, many years ago, I preached against this as pointing out that wars and famines that we see increasing are fulfilling this prophecy. And in a broad sense, that's hard to argue with, but I'm going to suggest to you that after you see Revelation 6, you'll discover that while these things are in broad terms and are increasing, they're not the fulfillment that Revelation focuses on. These things are going to very definitively be the beginning of a period that's broadly called the Day of the Lord. The word the Day of the Lord is used two different ways, connotatively very broadly. It's also used very narrowly at the climax. And we'll, we'll get at that in a little bit here. And then he goes on to talk about how they'll be delivered up and so forth. One of the things that Jesus talks about, one of the climactic parts of this passage is verse 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand. Then let them who are in the Judea flee into the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him who is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto those who are with child and to those uh, nurse, that nurse children in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. In other words, when you see this event take place, you split and split now. Who is he talking to? Those who are in Judea. This is a very Jewish passage. In fact, you'll notice in verse 20, he says, Pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath day. If you and I had to flee, would we be worried about the Sabbath day? Hardly, not as Gentiles. This, is, this passage, Matthew 24, is very Jewish. And you'll get confused if you fail to keep that in focus. Now, verse 15 deals with an event that historically happened 200 years earlier when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. And I won't get into the repeat of all of that. It's an event that you do need to understand what happened in, uh, at that time. A Greek ruler, um, for lots of reasons, but he wanted to wipe out Judaism, or try to. He outlawed the Torah, entered Jerusalem with 22,000 troops, plundered the temple, had offered a sow on the altar. Now, if you understand how Jews feel about pork and you understand how they feel about their altar in Jerusalem, you can imagine what reaction they had to that. But then he went further. He erected an idol in the Holy of Holies to Zeus. And the outrage launched the Maccabean Revolt. They threw off the the yoke of of the Greek rulers and ushered in the history area of history called the Hasmoneans. But that event uh, uh, is a major milestone and that what Antioch Spiphanes did when he put the idol in in the Holy of Holies, he did what's called the abomination of desolation. The word abomination means idol worship. It refers to idol worship. 
the abomination of de- desolation is the most in- the ultimate form of idol worship. Worshiping an idol is an insult to a jealous God. But how do you really get them angry? Is to put that idol in the most sacred place on the planet Earth, in Jerusalem, in the temple, and specifically in the Holy of Holies. And that that is a technical term called the abomination of desolation. Now, by the way, in verse 15, you'll notice... How many of you read that with me as I was going through that? Can I see a show of hands? I've got bad news for you. I tricked you. The last phrase in that verse says, He that readeth, let him understand. So you now have an obligation to find out all about that. And I won't take the time to get into the whole story here, except to point out that it points to the most critical, most fascinating prophecy in the entire Bible. The last four verses of Daniel 9. I also want to point out to you, there are people that will try to sell you the idea that the abomination... uh, By the way, see, when Jesus made this remark, the the Antiochus Epiphanes event was two centuries earlier. He's talking about something yet future. And many people try to uh, cling to the idea that the abomination of desolation Jesus is talking about took place in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. And that happens to fly in the face of the facts. Titus Vespasian and the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions laid siege to Jerusalem, slaughtered over a million inhabitants over a two-year period. It was a war going on, during which the temple accidentally caught fire, and they took it apart stone by stone to recover the gold. There wasn't any opportunity or time to institute any kind of false worship. It was a salvage job. And the abomination of desolation did not take place then. In fact, if you'll notice verse 21 to the end, to 28, you discover, in fact, um, excuse me, look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give its light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and so forth. Has that happened in history? Not so you'd notice. So if you happen to be among those that feel the abomination of desolation took place in 70 AD, you've got a problem. You've got to allegorize the rest of the passage because it can't fit history. So either you're, either you, that allegorization is valid, which you can demonstrate isn't, but that... Let's not beat that one to death. Or there's a misunderstanding of what the abomination of desolation is. The abomination of desolation is yet to happen. It is about to. It's on the horizon. Now, the main point of verse 15 is it points you to the most dramatic prophecy in the Bible. And again, uh, uh, that's too extensive for us to go through the whole thing tonight. But I want you to understand that Gabriel visited Daniel and gave him a four-verse prophecy. And if you're serious about your study of your Bible or serious about prophecy, you need to master those four verses. And they're not that hard, but you want to do it very carefully. Make sure you understand them. Of those four verses, the first verse, verse 24, first of the four, verse 24, is the scope of the whole passage. Gabriel says to Daniel, 77, 70 uh, weeks of years, are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city. Notice that it focuses on, on the Jews, not the church, not the world in general. Daniel, upon your people um, and the holy city to accomplish a series of things, to finish the transgression, make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, you don't have to be an expert, a theological expert, to realize those haven't been done yet. Some may have, but the point is, well, there certainly is not an end of sins. And we could give you, and, and on. So, this has yet to be completed, and yet we're talking about 70 weeks of years here we'll discover 69 of them are dealt with in the following verse. In verse 25, Gabriel goes on to tell Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Daniel's receiving this while a slave in Babylon, right near the end of the 70 years captivity. But Gabriel says, When they 
from the decree to restore and to build Jerusalem, unto the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King, shall be seven weeks plus 62 weeks. And if you know, it's, in, it, it's divided in seven plus 62, seven to finish the city and the 62 further. So 69 weeks will be from that decree unto the Messiah, the King. Now the decree is a matter of history. It was, done, it was uh, decreed by Artaxerxes Longimanus, it turns out, March 14th of 445 B.C. But when did Jesus allow himself to be presented to Jerusalem as a king? All through the Gospels, he doesn't let it happen. They try to take him as a king, he says, my, t my hour has not yet come. But then one day he not only permits it, he arranges it. Tells his disciples to go to this prearranged place, give him a password, they'll get a donkey, and he rides that donkey deliberately into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, which announces in Zechariah chapter 9, he says, when the king is presented, he'll be riding a donkey. And Jesus does that very deliberately. And in Luke 19, there's a presentation that you really won't understand unless you understand Daniel 9. Especially when you discover that that's the very day that Gabriel predicted. If you go through the mathematics of what he's saying, if you take the, the 360 lunar solar years, you multiply that by 7 to get a week, and you take 69 of those, it comes to the exact number of days from the decree of our exercises to the day that we call the triumphal entry. So the, one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible... Translated into Greek three centuries before Christ was born is this prediction that he would present himself as a king to Jerusalem, riding a donkey, in effect, um, uh, on that very day. So the 69 weeks of Daniel 70 have been taken care of. That leaves one left. And that will be dealt with the verse after, the verse after next. But verse 26 is a clue to understanding what's going on. Because in verse 26 it says, after the three score and two weeks, there were seven weeks plus 62. So when you say after 62, it's like saying after 69, in effect. Shall the Messiah be karat, cut off, executed for a capital crime, in effect, but not for himself? And the people of the princes shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. When was the city and the sanctuary destroyed? Thirty-eight years after the crucifixion, Titus Vespasian destroyed the city and the sanctuary. See, there could not have been an abomination of desolation since, because there's no sanctuary. In order to have an abomination of desolation, you have to have a sanctuary. There's been no sanctuary since then. That's why the re preparation to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem is so exciting to Bible scholars. It's an indication that all this fulfillment is right on the horizon. And it goes on, and the end of it shall be with an outpouring of diaspora. And the end of the war, desolations are determined. So that takes care of 69 weeks, plus a number of events that occur after 69, but before the 70th, which tells us there's an interval. These 70 are not contiguous. See, and now we know there's at least 38 years if you do the arithmetic. But it turns out we now know that from experience it's been 2,000 years, roughly. Verse 27 is, highlights what is called by scholars the 70th week of Daniel. It says, and he, and who's the he? You have to look at the pronoun he. The, most, the previously mentioned person was the prince that shall come. Not the Messiah, but the prince that shall come, this coming world leader. He has 33 titles in the Old Testament. This is one of them. The Willful King. The Little Horn of Daniel 7 and 8, etc. In the New Testament, Paul calls the man of sin, the son of perdition. We call him the Antichrist. 33 titles in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. The, and he, the prince that shall come, shall confirm or enforce a covenant. Remember that term in a minute. With the many, which is a term for Israel, for one week. That's the remaining missing week of years. And in the midst of the week, in the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate, and so forth. 
So he executes in the he enforces a treaty for seven years. In the middle of that seven-year period, he violates the treaty, forces them to stop the sacrifice, the temple, and set himself up to be worshipped, exactly like Antiochus Epiphanes tried to do or did do in 167 B.C. And by the way, the desecration of the temple back then, three years. By the way, he did all this on his birthday. He put the order out the 24th of Kislev. The following day is the 25th of Kislev is when the, the temple was desecrated. And, of course, th- when they finally threw off his yoke three years later, by then they'd won, they cleansed the temple, remade the, the contaminated imp- implements, and they rededicated the temple. And that is celebrated to this day by what the Jewish people call Hanukkah. It may surprise you to discover the Holy Spirit in the New Testament has authenticated that. In John 10.22, there's an allusion, strangely enough, to Hanukkah, if for no other reason than to illuminate the meaning behind this passage. Now, why am I going into all this here before we get Revelation 6? Because Revelation 6 through 19 is simply an expansion of what's going to go on in that seven-year period. Now, to understand the book of Revelation, you need to be sensitive to its Jewishness. Paul, in the epistles and in the church period, points out that he divides everybody in three categories, Jew, Gentile, and the church. What's interesting is those distinctions, which are... Uh, set aside in, the, in the, what we call the New Testament period, are reestablished in the book of Revelation. We're going to discover in chapter 7, the whole issue we'll take on next week will be this issue of the 144,000, the 12,000 from each tribe and all of that. Now with this, all this background, now we, and I realize that if this is new to you, it's simply a list of homework assignments. If you've done it before, it's intended simply to be a refresher. But let's pop now into Revelation chapter 6 as... The Lamb of God begins to take possession of that which he purchased with his blood. By the way, it's interesting. uh, You need to understand that the church, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.5, that the church was not revealed in the Old Testament. It's interesting that when you look at the vision of the throne of God in Daniel 7, you see everything like we saw it in in Revelation 4 and 5, except the 24 elders are visible. The highest rank of the church was the elder, 24, made up the courses of the priesthood, so 24 elders, uh, we believe for many reasons, is, is indicative of the church. But going on, it's interesting that in the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, it's directed to Israel, 70, 69 weeks of Israel's history where they reject their Messiah. Then there's this interval. That interval is called by some scholars the church age, the period of the church. The church wasn't always around. It could not have happened until after the ascension. It's called Pentecost. Church is not going to be around here forever. It ends at a place called the rapture. In fact, that's a precedent condition to all these things we're going to see about. The elders are in heaven. We're going to notice something very interesting as we go here. Anything happening in heaven is explained by the elders. Everything happening on the earth is explained by the living creatures. Watch that distinction. It's very interesting. The lampstands, which were Christ was in the midst of in chapter 1. Lampstands are in heaven in chapter 4. The church is in heaven from chapter 4 onwards. So we're going to see in the book of Revelation the vantage point of what's going on, on the earth from the vantage point of heaven. So we're going to go through now 14, not tonight, but we're going to start a, a, a series of 14 action-packed chapters that simply detail the seven, what's called the 70th week of Daniel. And uh, the message has been styled very carefully to be encouragement and relevant to all ages, but its primary application is to the age that's going to experience these specific things. But let's go to chapter, one, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. John says, I saw the Lamb, when the Lamb opened one of its seals, 
And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the four living creatures saying, Come and see. Mistranslation. It's not come and see. And see is implied by the translators. That's not what the word is. The word in the Greek is erku. It means come, but it really means proceed. It's like saying proceed. Erkomei. It's a, a middle voice of a primary verb. It's usually used of, of people arriving or making one's appearance, to come public, to come into being, to arise, um, to be established, to become known, etc. Or to go or follow one. So it's translated come and see, but that's misleading because it sounds like it's inviting someone. No, it's, instru- it's releasing someone to go forth is what it really means. So that's the the, uh, the their coup thing. Now, horses. We see we see these four famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first four seals of the book are uh, involve the going forth of these four horses. Horses are used as judgments idiomatically in the scripture. In Second Kings six, Jeremiah forty six, Joel two, Nahum three, Zechariah one, and all the verses will be in the notes. But the, you can a, a quick study. Uh, you'll, that's a familiar idiom to if you're reading the prophetic literature. It's a it's a, a idiom of judgment. Now the first uh, the first horseman comes forth. Verse two, John says, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, because he's riding a white horse, many people jump to the conclusion that this must be Jesus Christ. And let me quickly uh, dismiss that. Jesus Christ does show up in chapter 19 riding a horse. But there's some very interesting differences. First of all, this guy has a crown, but it's a Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. Jesus Christ has diadems, ruling crowns, and many of them. There's a, you compare the details of verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 with Revelation 19, you quickly discover there's a lot of differences here. Furthermore, let's not lose perspective. This guy is riding with three buddies. War, famine, death. If this is Jesus Christ, he's fallen into bad company. One of the clues to this is this business of a bow. And uh, most commentators will point out that a bow was the traditional symbol of Nimrod the hunter, the first world dictator. And that indeed is an interesting uh, comparison. But I have, as I was studying this, I've taught this for years, for, for almost a, uh, more than 20 years, and I just recently, in going over my notes, stumbled onto something that puzzles me because I must have a library of over a hundred commentaries in the book of Revelation, and to the best of my recollection, none of them notice something. I think many commentators recognize that this guy comes on a white horse and he's conquering, but not by military might. That comes with the red horseman that follows him. If we know anything about the... Uh, incidentally, I believe this first... Uh, and I think most uh, conservative scholars realize this horseman is the Antichrist. He resembles Christ. In fact, he resembles him so much that many commentators are confused. He is not uh, the Redeemer. He's one that masquerades as the Christ. He's the, and the word Antichrist, incidentally, in the Greek, doesn't mean against. It means in place of. Now, obviously, he's against Christ, too, but the point is the term actually means of, uh, in the place of Christ. But it's interesting. I happened to start, I started uh, using some of the computer techniques, and it's interesting. The word bow, everybody presumes, is a, like a bow and arrow. 
It turns out, in the Greek it's toxon, in the, in the Hebrew it's kasheth, where it shows up, and by the way, your key to any word is where it first shows up in the Bible, the law of first mention, as they call it. The first place you find a bow is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, where God puts a rainbow in the sky, we all know the story, to, to, as his commitment to Noah that he'll never let that happen again, right? And if you look at Genesis 9.13, it says, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. I personally am beginning to suspect that one of the implications... And by the way, it's the same word that you would use if you're bowing to someone, or if you have a bow and arrow, or if you have a token of a covenant. It's interesting that anyone that's done any homework on the Antichrist knows that he's defined... Frankly, by, by, uh, by uh, Daniel 9.27, where he enforces a covenant for seven years. That defines the 70, the 70 weeks of Daniel. In um, Daniel 8.25, it points out that um, through his policy he shall, come for, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall he destroy many, and so forth. So the writer, I believe, of the white horse is the Antichrist, the prince that shall come, call him by any one of the titles the scripture uses. But uh, his career begins as a peacemaker. That's very clear in the prophecies of Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. It's interesting that's even tied together here for us by the fact he's carrying a bow. Now a crown was given to him, but it's a victor's crown. He went forth conquering and to conquer. Everybody jumps to the conclusions by, by might. That isn't the initial intention. And by the way, he has a Stephanos, a victor's crown, not a diadem. Christ will wear the diadem. That's the crown of a, a sovereign reigning monarch. Jesus didn't warn us. He said, I've come in my Father's name, you receive me not. But another shall come in his own name, and him you will receive. This guy is going to be accepted by the world. As the Redeemer of Israel, as the twelfth Imam of Islam, as the, the ultimate solver of problems for the earth. So then we get to verse 3, and when he'd opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. There's four horses and four living creatures, remember? And each one of these horsemen are summoned by one of the four living creatures, interestingly enough. Verse 4, and there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Red is consistently associated with terror and death. We'll discover in chapter 12, the red dragon is one of the titles of Satan. And in chapter 17, we'll discuss the scarlet or red beast. And we could, as we're going here, we could make some comparisons with the passage we, we read uh, earlier, but I'll, I'll do that at the end here. Verse 5, And when he'd opened the third seal... I heard the third living creature say, Come and see, or actually come, or proceed. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. Black, by the way, if you do a concordance study, is associated with famine in Lamentations 4 and 5 and Jeremiah 14. Uh, are examples where black is associated with famine. There's a Jewish proverb, To eat bread by weight is impl- implies uh, that food is scarce. And it's exactly what's going on here. You'll find that in Leviticus 26, by the way, and Ezekiel 4 and elsewhere. But the passage continues in verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now the measure here is a chenix. It's about two pints. And it's a measure of wheat. It's According to Homer in Odyssey, uh, he said it's for a full day's worth of work. 
Herodotus says that this is consumed by each soldier in the army of Xerxes. And uh, by the way, the denarius, uh, which is the, the, the penny, is a day's wage. So apparently it takes a full day's wage just to feed one person. So if you've got a family, you've got a big problem. In other words, what this implies is famine. It implies more than that. It also implies controlled rationing. Controlled rationing. It's more than just famine. Many people miss that point. The oil and the wine. In our culture, that's equivalent to toiletries or beauty aids and liquor. In other words, the necessities are scarce and rationed, but the rich have no shortage of luxuries and such. The coming world leader, we'll discover when we study this in chapter 13, will control the world economy. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, in Revelation 13, is that nobody in the world under his rulership can buy or sell or have a job without having a number he assigns. And, of course, everybody is hung up with barcodes and the 666 that's used in them to separate and all this stuff. We'll deal with all that when we get to chapter 13. But let's continue. The fourth seal. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Proceed. It says, Come and see in the King James, but the word actually means proceed. And I looked, and behold, a livid horse, or pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Now the word for the color of this horse is chloros, which is pale or ghastly green, from which we of course get the term chlorine, from the same root. In Leviticus, it's the color of leprosy. That doesn't mean it's leprosy, but I mean it's just idiomatic of that kind of thing. Now, you notice there's two personages here. One is, of course, death, but hell follows with them. Now, hell here is an unfortunate translation, because you and I generally, unless we're careful, get confused. The word in the Hebrew is Sheol, and the word in the Greek is Hades. It's the temporary place. It's the abode of the dead. The idioms in the Scripture imply that it's geocentric in the center of the earth. That's in contrast to what you and I generally mean when we speak of hell as the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is in the outer darkness. So even geometrically, it's a totally different concept. The lake that burns with fire and brimstone we'll talk about as we get to those topics, but that's permanent forever. It's outside time. It's in eternity. Hades is a holding place, and and we'll get into that. But in any case, um, we have here death and hell, death and Hades, actually. See, death claims the body, and Hades claims the soul. So you've got both of these represented. John saw these enemies going forth to claim their prey, armed with weapons of the sword, hunger, pestilence, or death, and wild beasts. Now, when you hear the word wild beasts here is therion, not zoa. Some of your Bibles have these living creatures translated beasts, but it's unfortunate. The Greek word is zoa, meaning living creatures. It's not a sinister... The word beast in our vocabulary tends to be something fearful. It's a wrong term. It's not true. The word zoa is the word the word zoo comes from. It's just living creature. Here we have the term beasts. The word in the Greek is the therion. It is exactly what you... A wild animal, a, a brutal, bestial, a savage creature, ferocious. Now, as you read about these beasts, by the way, I'm not going to get into a thing on here, but I just want to... Don't make presumptions of scale. These could be very large, but they also could be microscopic. And when you have the world facing death from wild beasts, there's no reason that that can't be a virus or a a whatever. So keep your imagination broad. 
as you watch this and don't fall into uh, presuppositions. Let's just see what the Scripture says. Now, of course, as civilization crumbles, and we're going to see that happening here, our defenses against disease crumble as well. There'll be no sanitation, no safe drinking water, diseases like cholera, dysentery, and so forth, and, of course, other things like Ebola or HIV or what have you, biological warfare, all begin to start emerging here. Romans chapter 1 declares that God will give men over to their passions. God confronts us here, in effect, with a very unpleasant truth that um, he's going to give us what we demand. If the, if the world demands these things, that's what they're going to get. If we demand lies, God will send them the powerful delusion of the Antichrist himself, as, he, as Paul promised in 2 Thessalonians 2. If we seek to kill and destroy, we will inherit anarchy and mob rule. And if we live by greed and avarice, he will give us economic upheaval and inflation. If we seek power and control, he'll give us murder, intrigue, and slavery. So we're going to see the natural result of all that man has been pursuing emerge as these things continue. Now, it's interesting, and I don't want to get into a big word study here, but in Ezekiel 14.21, these four judgments are mentioned. All these are described as the beginning of birth pangs. You need to understand that what we have here is a trigger point. These aren't over yet. Uh, I mean, even in the book of Revelation, they start here, but they continue. What we have here is that the 70 week of Daniel is about to begin. But even though, I mean, we're only through four of the six, but as we get through these six seals, I want you to re- keep in mind there's another seal and then seven trumpets and seven bowls yet. This is just beginning. As terrifying as this language is, it's just the beginning of what God in these seven years is going to do to purge the earth and make it ready for the reign of the Redeemer. Now, by the way, one of the passages for the many, many Old Testament passages, and I'll have these all in the notes, and I'll spare you the page turning tonight, but one of these passages, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, in which it speaks of the tribulation, says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. God is going to purge the earth of its evil. But he also is going to put Israel into a corner that will finally have her admit her iniquity. And everybody says that there's no condition preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is one. And that is for Israel to ask him, officially. And we'll get into that in Hosea 5.15 and elsewhere. Let's turn to Hosea 5. And I won't get into a whole study here. I'll just give you the perspective here. Verse 15. God is speaking, and from the, from the context, verse 15, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Now, in order for him to return, he must have left it. So what this implies, God speaking, I will return to my place. Meaning, must it mean he left it? I'll return to my place. For how long? Until they acknowledge their offense. The word offense there in the Hebrew is singular, specific. Not sin in general. A specific sin is the rejection of their Messiah. In their affliction, they will seek me. They did that formally during the triumphal entry. Jesus, when he went to Jerusalem, wept over the city. And said, you're going to be destroyed. Not one stone left to another. Because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Jesus held them accountable to know Daniel 9. 
Now there are two responses to these opening of the four seals. One in heaven and one on the earth. The fifth seal deals with the response to all of this in heaven. Verse 9, When he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. The Greek word here, martis, gives us our English word martyr, which means witness. And the word of God, of course, is the word of God as we think of it, but don't lose sight of that. John also uses that as a title of Jesus Christ. So it's the witness of Jesus Christ uh, that we're talking about. Now, the altar we're talking about is in heaven, not in Jerusalem in the temple. This is in heaven. And if you remember Hebrews 9, all those things that are in the tabernacle temple are replicas of what Moses was shown in heaven. So many people forget that. The real Ark of the Covenant has always been in heaven. What, what Moses had was a replica of what he saw in heaven. If you study the passages, you'll notice that. Now, the other thing, you find this phrase here, they, these martyrs are viewed as being under the altar. And I've seen these quaint drawings by various artists where they have all these people sort of huddled under the altar. And that's a lack of understanding of the Torah. If you look at Exodus 29, Leviticus 4, you'll discover that that's where the blood was applied, was under the altar, at the bottom of the altar. And so that phrase is idiomatic, if you will, of the Torah, of the Levitical sacrifices, which of course pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now these martyrs, their murderers are still on the earth because they're going to scream for, the, for revenge. And so it seems, most scholars believe, that these martyrs are martyrs that occurred during the first four seals being opened. Some scholars will argue that they're Old Testament saints, and I don't want to get into that dispute. It doesn't serve our purpose tonight, but just be aware that some people hold that view, but a more defendable view is that these are the ones that lost their lives during the first four seals, and uh, they're part of the multitude that we're going to see in chapter 7, so we'll be taking all this up in chapter 7 anyway. I want you to notice that these souls are conscious. They're not resurrected yet. They don't have bodies, but they are conscious. And there's some very strange insights that come out of this because they're going to be able to wear garments even though they, they are souls and so forth. Now that may be just idiomatic use or there may be some insights there in terms of the physics of what we're dealing with here. Now we'll get into that here tonight. But these souls are conscious. They're not sleeping. There's no biblical basis for soul sleep. Jesus told the dying thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And from that, you know, the one that was saved was with Christ from that point on. So soul sleep is a heresy. I won't spend more time on that. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Philippians 1, 23 are other passages. Moving on to verse 10. These martyrs. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now here we have a phrase we're going to encounter a lot, the earth dwellers. You'll discover that throughout the, the book of Revelation, there are various groups of people. But those that dwell on the earth, and it doesn't mean that they're just physically there, the term implies they dwell upon the earth. I hope none of us do. Our citizenship is elsewhere. The earth dwellers are an abused bunch of people. You don't want to be an earth dweller in the book of Revelation. Now it's a very strange request they make. Because they're screaming for vengeance. Now that's very different than Stephen when he was martyred, right? You know, lay not this sin to their charge, and so forth. See, we're used to the New Testament teaching which pertains to that period, excuse the expression, dispensation in which we live. This verse, if nothing else, tips us off that something's different. We're in a different mode here. 
We're in the day of vengeance. We're in the day of the Lord in the broad sense. It's also used very denotatively shortly. How long, O Lord, has been a cry of God's suffering people throughout the ages, though? You can compare Psalm 74, 79, 89, 94, and other passages. Whenever you pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, you're in effect praying the same kind of thing. Because that's what we're talking about. And of course we talk about the blood of Abel and all of that. Interesting term for Lord here. This isn't the usual term used. The word in the Greek is despotis, which means it's, it's a term that the ancient Greeks used to politically refer to people who intruded into a land already occupied by someone else in order to take possession of it. And also to refer to an absolute ruler that had an unlimited possibility of the exercise of unchecked power. That's what the word implied. And how interesting word it is. Because they're saying, Lord, how long is it going to take you to, now that you're coming, to avenge us? Now, it's not personal revenge that they seek, but a vindication of God's holiness and the establishment of God's justice. When you begin to understand that, it sounds more consistent with what we understand. And today, you know, you and I can't help but believe the enemy is winning. You can see all over life and history, it would seem that the enemy is winning. But what we're going to want to keep our eye on is God is going to have the last word. And of course, we talk about hatred of the world, Romans 8, 7, other passages. I won't get into that all here. It's interesting that intolerance to the ungodly is increasing in our society. Especially among the so-called liberals, misnomer. In seeking to be abreast of the times, they've adopted the oldest errors with the most recent masks. The challenge, yea, hath God said that serpent used in, in Genesis 3 still echoes in our culture. The most unbelievable lies are accepted in our society. The evolution, which is easily mathematically, statistically, uh, almost any which way, uh, rendered absurd. And yet, that's the culture. The idea that we're all products of chance. It's an absurd hypothesis. And yet, that's one of Satan's most believable lies. The whole idiomatic uh, uh, structure of psychology has been foisted on us as the, as the language of the New Age. It's interesting that the ungodly here are united with Cain in their hatred of the sacrifice of blood. You know, all kinds of groups will agree to Christian things, but the one that drives them up a tree is the concept of the shed blood for our sins. That must be very important then, huh? God announced in Eden in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. He announced that to the serpent, that there's enmity. So if you experience enmity in the world... We've recently been involved in some relationship situations, and it's just clear that there's a basic enmity that emerges in its root cause, not by the misunderstandings and what have you, but by the fact that the world is at enmity with the things that you and I are about. Verse 11, And white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. In other words, there's more coming. Be patient, guys. It's all going to be taken care of. And others will join them, we'll discover, in chapter 11, 12, 14, and 20, to mention a few. So that's, what, that's the reaction in heaven. Let's see what the reaction on the earth is by looking at the sixth seal, which starts at verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Now, this is the first of three earthquakes that we'll find in the book of Revelation. It's here, and of course, chapter 11 and chapter 16 also have earthquakes. 
you'll discover if you start studying this book very, very carefully, there are certain flag points, trigger points that are repetitive. They don't necessarily refer to the same thing. They're really just markers, if you will, in a sense. I believe that these are literal earthquakes. Why do I believe that they're literal earthquakes? Many people will try to see other things in these. I take it very straightforward. That doesn't mean some of these other ideas might not also be present, but be very, very cautious about not taking it literally. I cannot find a place in the Bible where someone reads the Bible and doesn't take it literally. And I think that's instructive. When Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah and he says they're going to be slaves for 70 years, he thinks they're 70 years. He plans on it. And so, and I'll give you many, many other examples. In the script, the Bible clearly expects to be taken seriously. I'm not going to quarrel with figures of speech. I'll get into a talk show or a thing and they say, well, then God has feathers because of Psalm 91. Let's not be silly. Let's recognize that the Holy Spirit does use idioms. But at the same time, let's be careful before we start allegorizing any of this stuff. That's where the church got into a lot of trouble from Oregon onward and Augustine and the rest by being too casual with the Scripture and has led them down some very, very unfortunate uh, byroads. Literal earthquakes. Exodus 19 at Sinai. Literal earthquake. Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. Literal earthquake. 1 Kings 19. Matthew 27 elsewhere. At the crucifixion. I think those earthquakes were literal. Why should these not be? And uh, earthquakes and the sun turning dark shows up in Joel chapter 2, quite emphasized. The fact that the heavens are departing as a scroll, that'll come up here in a minute. Now, one of the things that may throw you is these cosmic, I'll just lump these issues as cosmic disturbances. They occur several times in the book of Revelation. And if you study these very carefully and the context in which they're presented, you'll discover they're different. So don't try necessarily to assume parallelism just on that basis alone of some kind. In Joel chapter 3, for example, it describes the sun, moon, and the stars darkened when the armies of the nation gather against Israel for war, namely Armageddon. And that's clearly not what's happening here yet. You're going to find out they do just the opposite here in a moment. They're not gathering for war. They're hiding in caves. Matthew 24 describes similar signs after the Great Tribulation itself as part of the Second Coming. Different issues. We could go through a lot of verses. I'll spare you all of that. Some people uh, get fanciful, uh, but may, they may be correct too. They, they see some of the symptoms that are described here as the same kind of thing that is expected by the scientists in what they call nuclear winter. After a nuclear war, the kinds of uh, changes to our cosmology of the, of the planet can cause these kinds of things happening. I'm not saying that's what's described here, but it's certainly not inconsistent with the very papers you'd read if you read in this area of what's called nuclear winter. What we're into here is the beginning of a period that involves the wrath of God. And one of the things that we're going to find that in chapter 11 and 14, 16, 19, we're going to get into a lot of that as this all unfolds. This is, again, one of those places where you might want to reread Psalm 2. Because that's where the three members of the Trinity talk to each other about all this going on. So make your note, if you haven't read it recently, read Psalm 2 and diagram it and figure out who's talking to who and you'll discover it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost talking to themselves. Uh, let's go on a little bit. Uh, verse 13, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This whole idea of the heaven departing as a scroll sounds fanciful to us. 
That sounds, in fact, you'll find in Isaiah 34, verse 4, it uses the very same expression. In Isaiah 40, 20, and 42, and 44, and 45, and 51, and also in Jeremiah 10 and 51, we find the Old Testament constantly speaks of the heavens being stretched. Stretched. And many commentators, I'm sure uh, in good conscience, figure that these are just idioms from the old cosmology of the ancient cultures. Well, they just haven't done any recent homework in the field of physics. Because one of the great discoveries that Dr. Einstein discovered is that space is curved. And that's distortion in the space-time continuum that causes gravity in the first place. That space, in fact, is stretched or curved. That's what causes gravity. That's what causes these... And I won't get into all that here. If you're interested in that kind of thing, we do have some briefing packages on Beyond Time and Space, which talks about Einstein's theory of relativity in the Bible. We have a package called Beyond Perception, which deals with particle physics and its discoveries and their impact. And one of the things that will blow you away is to discover the most recent insights from the most advanced frontiers of science fall exactly into place in terms of the idioms that the Old Testament uses to describe these things. Space is stretched and curled in using mathematical terms. And uh, so these things may be far more literal than anyone, most commentators, have any idea. And so uh, just be cautious before you start to, to uh, allegorize any of these things. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, this probably can be literal mountains. It can be literal topography on the earth. But I should also point out to you the term mountain is frequently used in prophetic literature as a symbol of government. We find that in Isaiah 14, where it talks about the destruction of Babylon. Also in Daniel chapter 2, in the famous vision of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the government of God that's set up as a mountain, the stone cut without hands becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. It's used as an idiom of government uh, in, in a prophetic sense. So that could be what's in view here, or it also might be very, very literal. I would just uh, uh, take it for what it says and... Uh, and just watch. Now verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freedman hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's interesting that the martyrs up in heaven are saying, Avenge us. But the unbelievers on the earth are saying, hide us. <laughs> it's interesting that the kings hide in caves. I tend to be fascinated with that little phrase for a very strange reason. We're going to explore when we get to chapter 8, and I'll leave the details till we get to chapter 8, the possibility that the book of Joshua is a deliberate model of the book of Revelation. But when we get there, I won't get into all that here tonight, because I think we'll be running out of time, but we'll deal with that in chapter 8. But Joshua is Yehoshua, is, is, is the Jewish for Jesus, is dispossessing the land of the usurpers. He's facing the seven remains of ten nations on behalf of the people of God. The first thing he does is send in two witnesses that get Rahab saved. And then he tackles the, the, the capital of the Amorites, the place called Jericho, which means, by the way, the, uh, the, the, place of the, the house of the moon god. But the point is, in the battle of Jericho, who fought the battle of Jericho? One Joshua, Jesus Christ, if you read the last part of chapter 5 of Joshua carefully. But what's interesting is every rule of the Torah is violated. The Ark of the Covenant was not supposed to go to war. It leads the procession. The Levites were exempt from military duty. They lead the procession. They're supposed to work six, uh, uh, six days and seventh day rest. On the seventh day there, they do seven times as much. And what they're supposed to do is keep silence as they march around 
each day until the last time, then they shout and blow the trumpets and the walls fall down. Then what happens is they, the remainders align themselves under a leader called Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness. And he gets defeated in the Battle of Beth Horon with signs of the sun, the moon, and so forth. And the kings that are left after that disaster hide in caves saying, fall on us, and so forth. Interesting parallelism. The more you study the book of Joshua and the more you study the book of Revelation, you can see structurally and linguistically they seem to be designed to be in parallel. But in any case, let's move on. We have this strange expression about the wrath of the Lamb. The Bible says, Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? But there's no promise made to those who call upon the rocks or the mountains or crystals or Mother Gaia. Okay? Now there is a rock that um, we can go to for a refuge, but I don't think that's what they had in mind here. This is a strange expression to our ears, the wrath of the Lamb. Now, by the time you've gotten through chapter 4 and 5, you realize what it means. That's the title of Jesus Christ. That's understandable. The wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb are essentially synonyms. It does sound like a paradox. Can you imagine a bumper sticker? Beware the Lamb, you know. <laughs> right? We should probably make some of those up. That would be kind of fun. God's wrath is simply evidence of his holy love for all that is right and his hatred, his holy hatred of all that is evil. And he's not going to compromise. And all the injustice and all the apparent compromising we see in society and life is going to be set right because God is God and he doesn't compromise. And what we're seeing, drastic as it may seem, is him setting about to do that very thing. It's finally uh, time. And we're also going to see in the book of Revelation the end of civilization. We've taken civilization so for granted, especially in our country. The traditions of Western civilization. Uh, frail though they may be and incomplete they may be in their theology, nevertheless they have given us stability and a, a society that's manageable. Yet we're watching in our own culture that being thrown out the window. That absolutes are being yielded to relativism and we're reaping the whirlwind. Society is coming apart at the seams. We're just seeing the symptoms of it in our own culture. Many authors believe that our children or grandchildren are the last Americans. That with the upheavals that are coming economically, if nothing else, it's going to be uh, uh, very, very troublesome. What Revelation is talking about is that with the decimal point moved over. We are being plunged already into the age of deceit. Uh, not just by crooks and criminals, but by our own governments, by the own institutions that we've come to venerate or, take for, or maybe take for granted. Verse 17, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? It's interesting, as you read these passages, rank and wealth will not deliver anyone. The people involved here, you need to realize, are impenitent. They would rather hide in the rocks than turn to God in faith. They are proof that judgment by itself does not change the human heart. And they will not only seek to hide, these same people who are presently hiding before the scenario is over are going to take up arms against God. The amazing thing about Armageddon is that the nations knowingly are taking up arms against God. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what they're going to be doing. But that's coming later. And uh, Now, we've gone through this rather quickly in the interest of time, but one of the things that's interesting that wasn't obvious because I didn't take the time as we went 
is the remarkable parallelism between Revelation chapter 6 that we've just gone through and uh, Matthew chapter 24 that we skimmed only uh, superficially. In Revelation 6, first two verses, we had a white horse rider presenting himself as if he's Christ. In Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, we had the false Christ announced. Be, be, Be careful that no man deceive you. Revelation 6, the next couple of verses, did, uh, dealt with the red horse, or war. And in verse 6, the next verse in, in Matthew 24 was the wars and rumors of wars, etc. In Revelation chapter 6, we had the black horse speaking of famine, verses 5 and 6. In, in Matthew 24, the next verse, verse 7, has famines. In Revelation chapter 6, we had the pale horse, or livid horse, that represented death, verses 7 and 8. And, of course... Again, in, in uh, Matthew 24, verses 7 and 8, has death. In uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the next few verses, we had the martyrs. And uh, then, of course, in, in that uh, corresponding portion of Matthew 24, we have the martyrs alluded to in verse 9 and so on. In uh, Revelation chapter 12 through 17, we saw worldwide chaos in various forms. And in Matthew 24, verses 10 through 13, and also 29 and following, we have the same thing. And uh, in Isaiah 23, verse 9, it sums it up. It says, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to stain the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the would-be honorable on the earth. Now, heavy stuff. And incidentally, we're just getting warmed up. Book of Revelation, uh, we've got um, um, another seal, which involves... um, Seven trumpets and seven bowls yet to go. And a lot more, by the way. I I won't try to go through all that now. What's our reaction? See, the good news is we are in chapters 2 and (laughs) 3. That's where you and I are. And we will go from there, if we're in Christ, to the throne. So we're going to be watching all this from the mezzanine, in a sense. Okay? And yet, what should our response be to all of this? If your response to all this is fear and trembling, then you've got a bigger problem. That's your relationship with Jesus Christ. If these ideas bother you, if they disturb you, that's the Holy Spirit probably trying to tip you off. You're not ready. If you're in Jesus Christ, these things should be distant, provocative, but you are with Him and protected by Him from all these things. Paul is, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we are promised that we and I are not appointed to wrath. This is wrath that we're dealing with here. We're not there. This is what's going to happen on the earth for those that have rejected the Lamb of God. So on the first point, if this bothers you, that's perhaps, possibly, it's an indication of your own spiritual situation, of being unsure, insecure of where you stand with Jesus Christ. You want to deal with that seriously. And there's no reason to leave here with any doubt about where you stand with respect to Jesus Christ. But for most of us, there's another dimension to all of this. As we begin to see this, and we're going to see a lot more as we go, we're going to quickly begin to realize this stuff is coming down on the horizon. This isn't an academic study we might have done 50 or 100 years ago. So much of what we're talking about is tangibly uh, evidenced right in front of our noses. What that should do for all of us is increase in each of us a sense of urgency. How many of you know someone at work, in the neighborhood, or at home that has yet to discover the redemption in Jesus Christ? I don't mean just a stranger. I mean somebody you care about. How many love somebody who has yet to discover this? Well, see, (laughs) 
their eternity may very well be impacted by you. I'm not saying to go there and be more overbearing than you have in the past. You'll discover that's counterproductive. <laughs> What's the most powerful thing you can do for that person? Pray for them. Absolutely. God knows those influences that will blindfold their prejudices and lead them to the truth. But you might consider whether or not you're withholding the truth from those whose eternity could be altered by your disclosure of it. Matthew 24, verse 14, introduces the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world. And many people misunderstand that. The gospel of the kingdom might be quite, something quite different than most people presume. And this is all going to bring us to Revelation chapter 7. We've been through the six, six of the seals. You'll discover something else as you go through the book of Revelation. Almost everything in the book of Revelation are groups of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and literally over a hundred other groups of seven. But something you'll notice if you're studying carefully, we'll talk about six seals, and then there's a change of subject for a while before they deal with the seventh. When we get to the seven trumpets, we'll deal with six of them. Then there's a change of subject before we go to the seventh. When we get to the seven bowls, even there, even though there's just a few verses for each, you'll discover between the seventh, uh, the sixth and seventh bowl or vial being poured out, there's a sort of an unrelated verse, a per, what, what scholars call a parenthesis. You'll notice a pattern. The book of Revelation is orchestrated like a tight symphony. Every number, every word is woven, and that's what makes it hard to teach. And if, if you really get into it, you have to be awfully interested to get into all that. And you could, you could literally have a, a verse-by-verse study that would go on for four or five years, going through all the nuances. So one of the things we're doing, and one of the challenges, is to try to get capture the sweep of it without getting bogged down in what many people would consider laborious detail. But the point is, what you do is you get into it, is discover it is thoroughly organized. But one of the parts of the organization we'll be sensitive to is there's always six, and then a parenthesis. And the trumpets, the, the seventh seal and the trumpets will start with the first verse uh, of uh, chapter 8. But between 6 and 8, there's chapter 7, which deals with a separate topic. Sort of a summary or a, a footnote or an editorial. There are different kinds. In chapter 7, we're going to hit head-on this issue of God's purpose with the nation Israel. And we're going to discover that you and I, most of us, have been taught in our churches some tragic misconceptions about God's role, purpose, destiny of the nation Israel. And don't feel bad because most seminaries have overlooked if you, if, uh, the, one of the most important aspects of theology. If you look at any set of systematic theologies, go to any Christian bookstore or library, and you'll see systematic theology by various authors, the things that seminaries typically organize their curriculum about, around. And you have all these ologies. You know, you'll have uh, uh, epistemology, how you first know it, hermeneutics, how you interpret. But then you'll have Christology, study of Christ. Um, uh, you'll st the whole study of the Spirit, uh, study of the Church. Uh, you have all these fancy words for all. They've divided all of theological knowledge into categories. And if you go to seminary, you go through all of that. I think it was Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum that uh, pointed out and published uh, his Ph.D. thesis, and subsequently it's in a very large book um, called Israelology, that it's the study of Israel as God's instrument. It's amazing that something like five-sixths of the Bible deals with a subject that is not organized within our schools, of, in our seminaries. And that's the role of Israel. 
as an instrument of God's purpose. Israel has an origin, a mission, and a destiny, and that origin, mission, and destiny is distinct from the church. The church has a different origin, mission, and destiny. And it's amazing how many apparently competent writers are muddled, muddled up the distinction between Israel and the church. Now that's not just academics, that also turns out to lead to some tragic heresies. And uh, it also, it is to that heresy that led, is that heresy that led to the Holocaust in Europe. And Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Road to Holocaust, which is basically a study of that failure of the church to distinguish between Israel and the church in terms of the eschatology. And that's what led to the Holocaust. That may shock you, but it's a very, it's a, it's a reality. And the reason it's important, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Israel is yet facing a time of trouble that Jeremiah 37 call, 30 verse 7 calls the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the, it's the Old Testament name for the tribulation. And Jesus described it as a time of trouble such as the world had not seen to that day or ever would see again. You talk about Auschwitz and Dachau and all the horrors of, of the Holocaust as we know it in history. It's going to pale, pale against what's coming. And the tragedy of what's coming is that it's going to be caused by the same factors. And we're going to find, strangely enough, the, quote, Christian church leading it into that. Now, uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that, Chuck? Well, I mean those, that church that, uh, that does not need new pastors after the rapture. Okay? So, what we're going to do next time, then... What we're going to do next time is we're going to explore chapter 7, the ceiling of the 144,000. But what we're going to use that occasion also to just focus on God's plan and future destiny of the nation Israel on the earth. We're going to jump head first right into this controversy about the so-called ten lost tribes. And we'll talk about why, how can you have twelve tribes in Revelation 7 and the tribe of Dan is missing. What's going on? Where do they get this idea that the tribe of Dan is the tribe from which the Antichrist will come? Where does that idea come from? And so forth. We'll explore all of those things in chapter 7 next time. Let's stand for a word of prayer. And let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you that in your holiness and in your righteousness... You have yet loved us so much as to go to such extremes that we might be cleansed of our unholiness and our unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we begin to comprehend the extremes you've gone to that we might live, as we begin to understand why it was necessary to have a kinsman redeemer on our behalf, and that you loved us so much and so unconditionally, so as to provide that, so that we, cleansed and sanctified by Him, might enjoy an eternity in fellowship with You. Father, as we begin to understand these things, we are just overwhelmed. So, Father, we praise You in awe and in gratitude for these discoveries. And yet, Father, as we also begin to observe your judgments and your wrath that is destined to be poured out upon this earth. We also ask you, Father, to 
Help us to be increasingly aware of your purposes in us in these days that remain. We thank you, Father, that you have fashioned and tailored and designed an opportunity that's uniquely engineered for each of us to be participants in what you're doing. So, Father, we would just ask you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, to increase our hunger and appetite for your word, but that we also would begin to understand what you would have of us in response to these things. That we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, but that we each also might discover that particular response that would make us more pleasing in thy sight. For we commit ourselves before you in the name of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain, Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.